What do you think, Lucas, in your perspective, are some of the potential roadblocks to mainstream adoption of, of Web3 in general? What do you think? I think like mainstream adoption is sort of inevitable in a way. It's just, I guess, a matter of how fast sort of and, and whether users know that they are actually interacting with it, but um, or whether or not that aspect is obfuscated also known as sort of the holy grail of widespread adoptions. You're tuned to the Rcast, where we talk about the blockchain on the Rcast and how your data remains it's the Rcast, where R drive is the topic, censorship resistant permanence. Yeah, we got it. Hello everyone. Welcome back to the Rcast. This is episode 14 with Lucas Porter Baker, who does a ton for R drive. He's the director of design, but he does a lot of other stuff and he's actually designed the logo for this show, amongst other things. So on this episode, we talk about his time in China. We talk about branding and logos and art. And it was a really fun conversation because Lucas is a dude who's very well versed in aesthetics, but technical things. And uh, I really enjoy talking to him. So enjoy this interview. Inferno is live. If you want to stack those R Drive tokens, check out rdrive.io slash inferno. And if you can upload a gigabyte a week, you'll be in the running. Tell your friends. It's our exciting third user rewards program. Also, shout out to rweave.build. I know I've seen some of you there during the GatherTown meetups. People are making some great projects. So if you have an idea for an Rweave app, be sure to check out rweave.build and holler at us on Twitter because there's a lot of great ways you can integrate R Drive and RFS and just make the process smooth. So speaking of smooth, let's get into it. This is my interview with Lucas Porter Baker right here on the Rcast. Welcome back to the Rcast. This week we have one of our most celebrated team members, a person who is on the aesthetic side of our drive and the engineering side, man who's had a very interesting career. He's talking to me from Toronto. We've got Lucas Porter Baker on the podcast today. Lucas, how are you doing? I'm awesome. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. In Canada, it's common that kids learn French, kind of like in California, we're taught Spanish. And you also speak Chinese and English. Which language do you feel is the most beautiful to you when you hear it? I guess English, <laughs> maybe because it's my native language. Um, but I do love the sound of Chinese. I haven't been back there for a couple of years now. And so when I do hear it, I get this sort of urge to go back there. So kind of missing it, I suppose. So maybe it feels beautiful now. When did you live there? And like, maybe we can use this as like a turning point to some of the other questions, but yeah, what, what's your experience with being over there? So I moved there with, um, who's now my wife, Natalie, we, we moved there. We kind of threw a dart at a map sort of thing. Um, just after first year university, we ended up in, um, <laughs> this city no one's heard of with like 8 million people in it called Shuzhou. Um, and we just, uh, you know, we, we taught English. I studied Kung Fu, um, and we kind of, it was a, there was no one really that spoke English at all. But I think we encountered one other foreigner in the whole, the whole year we were there. Um, so it sort of forced us to learn pretty quickly, learn Chinese, at least orally, not, um, not with characters or anything like that. But um, that was the first time I went back in 2008 to Beijing 
Foreign Studies University as part of my uh, my foreign languages minor at university, which is like a semester there. And then I went back again with eight friends. It was our first sort of entrepreneurial adventure. We went with, uh, I led a team of eight Canadians over to China, like a platoon of English teachers to a place called Hangzhou to build a school, like a, just a brick and mortar kind of school. Um, I did that with my wife as well. So that's, that was around 2013, I guess. I just finished my my dissertation. And um, yeah, we landed there in 2013 and spent about, yeah, over half a decade, I guess, in in Shanghai and Hangzhou. So you've really been there like a significant percentage of your life. I, I mean, I don't really know what we were thinking in terms of uh, how we were going to get by. Um, but the the Kung Fu that it started quite soon after I got there, I kind of did sort of this karate kid story where I like by fluke met this, well, so we got paired with a Chinese tutor um, through the Canadian teacher. We were tapping out. She was coming back home. We were tapping her out. Anyway, her tutor became our tutor and his uncle was a Kung Fu master just as it happened. And he asked me, you know, is there anything you really wanted, you know, big takeaways from your year here? Like just out of curiosity, if there's any way I can kind of facilitate um, you know, other than teaching you Chinese. And I said, like, well, I, I just kind of threw it out there. I'd love to learn Kung Fu. And he said, you know, well, oddly enough, and if you're interested, you can meet him. And I don't know, I'm not promising anything, but, um, you know, you can meet him and see how it goes. And so I said, yeah, definitely. Um, I think about a day later, two days later, he picked me up at 5 a.m. on a scooter and <laughs> zipped me off into this. It was like a, an old kind of, almost looked like an old war factory or something like a old, like warehouse, like a rusted kind of red star. Anyway, that's where he lived. And it was this like, yeah, this sort of odd, I mean, he spoke obviously no English. I spoke no Chinese. I'd been there for maybe two weeks. Um, Through the tutor, he kind of like translated. Um, Anyway, he offered to take me on as his final student before retiring. And uh, so I did that for, yeah, the whole year I was there every morning, 5 a.m. Um, and the first, you know, several, I guess, couple months was just like no language at all. It was just the forms and just like sign language. And I don't know, it's just like a, so anyway, just to say all of that just forced this kind of rapid, you know, like accelerated, I guess, like education in Chinese, in oral Chinese. That's a, quite a story, man. And it's like, and you have a similar role in our drive, bridging the amorphous worlds of like the aesthetic, user-facing graphic side, but also being versed with the, the engineering side and knowing about the technical elements. So it's like a similar way of bringing worlds together that takes a certain kind of talent and and passion. Can you tell us a little bit about Goji and like how this eventually led you to the path you're on goji was basically so yeah my wife and i um and six of our basically best friends from high school and childhood had gone over to start um what in english was called west group not a chinese name and this was the school um it kind of yeah it started as just an after school thing and kind of evolved into we were trying to do like camps and it, it eventually kind of evolved into a corporate education so we you know the chinese government was a client um yeah, kind of all over the place from like little kids to, to corporate clients. Um, and the 
I mean, it was a brick and mortar business. It was sort of like fundamentally unscalable in terms of the fact that we had to bring foreigners for bring Canadians or, you know, native English speakers from all over the world physically to China in order to teach. Um, so we had this sort of, it was prohibitive in that sense. And so we started Goji as a way to basically, um, basically Uber for ESL is what we, what we would call it, which was like on demand tutors from all over the world. So we kind of rushed into, you know, made all the typical mistakes that you make as an early founder um, rushed into this tech company. None of us were technical um, and tried to build uh, a suite of apps for the Chinese marketplace and for, or to build this two-sided marketplace. Um, long sort of story short, I mean, it was insanely frustrating to try to build or, you know, build a technical company um, without any technical language, without any technical knowledge. So I ended up going to, after, you know, I guess a couple of years that we just outsourced to a dev shop in New York. And then when we brought in local one to China, um, I it was basically just so frustrating to not have kind of control over that, to not understand what was really going on. Anyway, I went up at um, this coding and design school in Shanghai. So learned how to code there, ended up building the Goji apps ourselves. And then sort of our best crack at it was coming out of coming out of coding school there. Um, so anyway, that sort of, I guess, gave me the technical background. That was 2017, I think maybe. Hmm. Um, but that kind of was the, what I found I love to do was through that was roles that sort of involved it all. Um, so the business side, the product side, the design side, the engineering side, um, and I find that my role now is sort of a confluence of all of those things. It's kind of like a generalist, so to speak. So that's sort of how I, I guess, how Goji kind of parlayed into that. So that sort of forced me to become technical. Um, and uh, yeah, and I guess that's sort of why <laughs> what seems like an otherwise random, like, I guess, job is what it is. I think it's, it's one of these ones that... Um, I don't know how to say it, like kind of like master of nothing almost, <laughs> except except just being able to kind of do a lot of different things. In a sense, I guess it's speaking several languages, right? This role. You're speaking you're speaking business, you know, you're speaking, you know, engineering, you know, you're speaking to customers, obviously. So in in a way, I guess it's this conduit between all these sort of spheres of the company. Well, the Kung Fu part of your story shows your like dedication to a craft. Like, I'm going to learn how to code. I'm going to learn this ancient uh, martial art, right? Like, I'm going to show up and be be up for the adventure that is life. And I feel like all these people I've met through the Arweave community, through my time at R Drive, are these people who have a really unique skill set. And through a confluence of events, they found themselves on this path. And it's also interesting how like the value as an entrepreneur in the world in 2022 and beyond is having a little bit of technical skill, but also having an ability to relate to people, to um, connect, connect, be able to have like social intelligence. And I think like a little of that goes a long way. And you really don't develop that if you don't travel and don't try new things. And now as a parent, 
you have two kids and you have to balance your time with the company, with your projects, with your entrepreneurial endeavors, with all your passions. Um, how do you keep that sense of adventure? Yeah, it's tough. And then through the, you know, through working from home and COVID and stuff, it's been even more challenging. I think you know, where we are in Canada and Ontario, we've had a, a very uh, questionable <laughs> lockdown situation happening for the sort of duration of COVID. Hmm. Um, it was, I, I, I guess it's, so I've been kind of doing several jobs in parallel throughout. Um, you know, my wife and I don't really have any help because we, um, well, we, we're from Toronto. We, we moved out of Toronto cause the, um, you know, it's a way nicer place to be during COVID. The city wasn't that much fun. Um, so we just were mm. kind of halfway to our cottage, which is too cold, unfortunately, to be at all year round or we would have, um, but just to say, yeah, so we've kind of been doing, you know, it's been pretty full bore this um, this last couple of years. It's been you know, a lot of work. And then it kind of, yeah, it obviously blends with your home life because you're literally <laughs> working at home. Um, so right. I've kind of just, I guess, found a way that works for, for me and for us, which is to sort of just like weave it throughout the whole day. So, so like, you know, I'm up early with, with my son and... Um, you know, enjoy some time with him. And then like, if he goes down, I rattle off two hours and then do another shift. <laughs> basically parenting. It's basically just been a pretty ad hoc experience. So work life has been trying to, you know, prioritize my family, but just work kind of all around that. And it often ends up, it's basically been two years of five hours of sleep at most <laughs> before. <laughs> um, with that said, you know, we try to, you know, unplug, I guess, by, well, that time is so nice with the family that that feels like you're unplugged um, for the most part. You know, I often have to take meetings, you know, while we're out for a rip at the beach or something. But, um, but yeah, I guess it's just trying to blend it all together for now and hope that, um, hope that, yeah, the COVID thing goes away, <laughs> goes away magically. One of the big goals is mainstream adoption of web three and specifically like permanent storage and the R drive, R weave mission. Like, what do you think Lucas in your perspective are some of the potential roadblocks to mainstream adoption of, of web three in general? What do you think? I think like mainstream adoption is sort of inevitable in a way. It's just, I guess a matter of how fast sort of, and, and whether, users know that they are actually interacting with it, but, um, or whether or not that aspect is obfuscated, also known as sort of the Holy grail of widespread adoption. So users not necessarily knowing this is web three, mm. but benefiting from benefiting from all the value adds that it provides. So that's kind of, you know, designing for web three is often, I mean, I often think about it like that. So how to, how to get them the, the benefits without the, compromised let's say ux <laughs> um and so what i think like some platforms have had a bit of success so far with you know kind of like meeting users where they are so what their expectations are currently um you know similar to how you know the future of web3 being interoperable it's sort of i think the linchpin of success with or the i guess the accelerated success of web3 you know i 
feel like kind of involves some interoperability between web three and web two. So it's like integrating with existing things where it can, and then sort of slowly, I, could, I don't feel like it has to be all or nothing, you know, at once. So I feel like it's kind of this inevitable thing. It's more just a matter of how fast, I guess, how fast users preferences change. Um, you know, I've, I often, I say this all the time, I, I often feel like, you know, designing products for blockchain is like drinking from a fire hose. Like I was, um, <laughs> my, my intro to blockchain actually only happened two years ago when I started um, what became my role as entrepreneur in residence with Arweave. Um, and this consultant told me that a phrase and I haven't forgot it. <laughs> you know, it's, it is exactly that. Um, so I think like obstacles, I guess, you know, are sort of things that are hindering it. I think, you know, like fluctuating transaction costs, you know, makes it very difficult for users to know how much, you know, something might cost. Mm-hmm. Um, the sort of technical nature and new jargon, you know, makes it, you know, intimidating to certain demographics. Um, also unraveling like all these web two kind of crutches, such as sort of like, you're like undoing the undo button. <laughs> um, you know, you can't forget passwords. So having kind of creative fallbacks for all those. I think as far as obstacles go, I think those are, you know, some of them. Um, it obviously depends on on the platform or product. But, uh, but yeah, I think it, I think it is sort of inevitable. Um, and, and I mean, with Arweave and R-Drive, I think, the, like, I mean, Arweave makes, you know, among other things, makes permanent data um, possible sort of enables a new business model among other things. So, I mean, those are massive value adds in terms of utility. Um, and our drive, you know, is there to make those accessible on a wide scale. So I think, you know, there's, there's an insane amount of utility there. It's just, I think our drive is really primed for widespread adoption of those of those added benefits. It's like Occam's razor, right? The idea that the simplest answer is the best. Mm. You designed recently the RIO logo, which is um, cool because it, well, I'll let you talk about it, but t- let's talk about the steps that it takes to design a conceptual project and like what happens when a team gives you feedback that you might not necessarily feel because ultimately art is kind of subjective. I mean, as far as the process goes, I mean, not always, but sometimes, um, as kind of like a thought exercise, I deliberately try to kind of like install creative constraints. Um, this, I forget her name. There's this great book and she said something like, um, what's her name? Doctor something. Anyway, it'll come to me, but basically from, you know, Picasso to Stravinsky, you know, like Frank Lloyd, Wright, Anyone it's not, um, she says something like, you know, it's not this boundaryless creative freedom that inspires new ideas, but like self-imposed and like well-considered constraints. Um, and it, you know, it makes it harder at first when you're, when you're sort of like conceptualizing a new, a new logo, but it, it often lends to like an originality, you know, so to speak. So I think like with the RIO logo, um, I started just via some like basic word association, um, about what it was, what it was and what it was sort of trying to position itself as. And we came up with like you know, tunnel portal kind of gateway, um, you know, but how to make those not look cheesy. And then we wanted to, it to appear sort of with this movement, you know, IO is like in and out 
obviously, um, as the domain suggests. We love the idea with of playing with negative space. That was a preference. Um, but we also wanted it to read as I.O. Um, and finally, as, a, as an homage to the permanent memory and what has become, you know, a symbol of the RWEV ecosystem, it would be great to throw an elephant in there somehow. But um, ideally to sort of have people see that after the I.O. Um, so that was sort of like, I, I guess, the, the canvas at first. It was just this big dump of things that were like, okay, how do we kind of... <laughs> How do we get all of that into one little thing that isn't overcomplicated? Um, so we were thinking, okay, we can use a slash, but then it left the IO kind of looking like a 10. Um, so it was like, do we make the I lowercase? And lowercase I's don't always look great. A dot and a slash was okay, but then it didn't look like the URL. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, it was like, RIO is the center of the center of this ecosystem, right? But it can't look centralized. Um, so I don't know, it's just, there's tons of these kind of design challenges, um, I guess you could say, um, that made it really challenging. And I think, you know, we came up with something that somehow <laughs> I think ticks all those boxes. It's a work in progress, but, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, it was, and it was certainly not without everyone's feedback. So, and, and on that point to your, to the second part of your question, I mean, it was, um, you know, it can sometimes, I guess, I, I guess the problem is when you know, people don't feel like their feedback kind of came through in the end result. Um, and it's tough when there's, there's tons of people weighing in to, you, you can't possibly, you know, like get it all out through or get it all out there. So I, I don't know, I guess, I guess it's, it's more fun when it's collaborative, I think but it doesn't always work depending on who, what the group is. So I, I guess that's why sometimes I don't um, do that. I felt with, with this group, it was certainly, you know, it's a very collaborative team. Um, we're all you know, pretty close. So I thought, I thought it would work and it, and it kind of did, I think so. If you go to Twitter, R underscore I O underscore network, you can see it. It's in the uh, logo there, but it's, it's a, it's a really cool design. And I think, you explain that well, like how you had to balance all these things. And from what I've heard about Kung Fu, like it's all about balancing within the elements of nature, right? Like that's what I remember hearing about. It's about paying respect to the, to the natural world and finding grace and peace inside of all that. Am I, am I wrong with that? Or is that, did, or is that just something like I, I maybe saw in a movie? <laughs> I mean, it's probably been in a movie, but I think that's probably because, you know, it's definitely got some truth to it for sure. It's about finding harmony between like all these requirements for the project and the best logos are simple and effective and you see it and you know what it promotes and, and kind of the uh, elephant emoji. You see it if people have it next to their names on Twitter, it means they're part of the Arweave ecosystem. So like a great brand incorporates all these things. So my question then for you, Lucas, is what are some of your favorite logos of all time that you're a fan of? And these may or may not be ones you design, but can you think of a few that you, that when you're like, Oh, those are dope logos. Yeah, it's really tough. I mean, I guess it depends on, I mean, I think of, I mean, a logo obviously is like a, I mean, maybe not obviously, but is a sort of a vehicle for, you know, an emotion you get often with, with that brand or that product, you know, you, whether it's trust or quality or whatever the sort of attribute is, you see a logo and you connect with what it provides. 
Um, and so I think, you know, you can have, I guess you can have logos that are your favorite because they are products you use or ones you just purely appreciate for design's sake. So, um, so I don't know. I mean, I think, like, I love, as you said, simplicity. I mean, you'd be remiss to not, you know, have Nike somewhere on that list. The classic sort of simple, iconic swoosh. Um, so simple logos like that, I think, are, you know, often, they're, they're very difficult to be original now, though, of course. You know, like, there was this kind of golden age of advertising and branding in the, you know, 60s and I guess like 50s, 60s, 70s. Like, basically, no shape isn't used. So it's kind of how, how do companies re-envision things and, and end up using them, you know, so... But with Nike, I mean, that's sort of, they just have owned that. <laughs> They've come up with a name for the shape even. Um, so, yeah, I think that's an awesome logo. Um, I love logos that have layers of meaning to them. Um, you know, Apple, obviously, one being, I, I mean, I guess these are maybe afterthoughts, but, you know, the bite out of it, whether that's a bite, like a play on words with, like B-Y-T-E-S or whether it's, um, you know, like a Garden of Eden thing or, you know, like the Apple of Knowledge, whatever it is, it's on its own still simple, still recognizable and iconic. So I think that's an awesome logo because it's simple, but it's got all this, I mean, it's insanely simple, but it has all of this kind of layered meaning. Um, like what else, Cisco, you know, the Golden Gate Bridges that are also the sound waves, um, Adidas being like the lines with the shape of you know, the side of your shoe, but also like, you know, a mountain athletes, um, you know, obvious ones like FedEx, the arrow between the and the X. I think like those, those types of logos. I love when I just see logos that are almost have Easter eggs in them. Like you kind of discover later these like extra qualities to them that they don't need to convey what they or to serve the purpose they do, but they're sort of there for art's sake for later. So I love logos like that. Um, sort of on a more like, I guess for more current or more new stuff, I think, I mean, the Terra logo, I love the Terra, um, Terraform Labs and the, and the Luna icon are they kind of, they're part of the same family. They've found a way to make, like create an insane amount of depth with the same kind of shades of color and come up with something super original, which is really, really hard to do. So um, for a newer company, I guess I would say like something like Terra um, would be a, a kind of a current favorite. You have to recognize it even when it's super tiny. And that's kind of the, a lot of like the result of us all being online and being used to like looking at really small things on a screen. It's similar with album art. Like now when artists design art, it's not for the 12 inch vinyl. It's for like the tiny Spotify logo, which makes, which makes the job interesting because a good logo can look good and small. And I think some of the best artists of all time are able to have work that transcends the visual platform. So are there any artists, Lucas, that you enjoy that you respect? Oh, so many. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I'd be hard pressed just to come up with three, you know, art, like musician, musical artists, you know, whether it's Big L or Fela Kuti or Mozart, or, you know, we're talking about painting, like from Bruegel to Da Vinci to directors, like 
Wes Anderson or Coppola or so I, I mean it's for like thinking about it from I guess a graphic design perspective um, I mean there's these well the, some of these logos we've talked about by um, artists like you know Paul Rand then the IBM one um, American Express Ford you know all these just just like a decade of bangers one after another that are still used today um, but I think like, I guess one that's super interesting, I think, um, is Paul Renner who developed a font, I think it was in the 1920s, uh, this German typographic artist that developed Futura, this font, which it's, I mean, I guess I obviously didn't, you know, I didn't follow him as an artist, but I guess I'm just, you know, mentioning sort of a, a lasting impact that someone's work has created and it's just crazy how many brands have used that same font um and a font is obviously such a huge part of a brand so you know from and even you know across or even um within the same market like across ends of the sort of spectrum like you know volkswagen which is obviously like the you know like a people's car and then mercedes you know, which is like the, the high sort of a, like a premium, I guess, like version of it. So like spanning, I don't know, like Dolce & Gabbana, Louis Vuitton, Nike, Supreme, like Red Bull, Domino's, PayPal, FedEx, like it, they all using this one font that this guy came up with in the 20s. I think that's just incredible. And the, I mean, the list goes on. That's probably just a, the tip of the iceberg. So I think... Yeah, I guess as far as graphic design is concerned, I think for someone to come up with something so, and like that's 1920 to 2020, that's like a hundred years of relevance um, across, yeah, across like myriad industries and within those industries and, and spaces, like different types of customers. Or, so I don't know, I think that's just an incredible impact you can have through just something like a font. It's interesting you mentioned Futura because I use Futura Bold for like when I'm doing the YouTube stuff for R Drive or some of the social media content because I felt like it's the closest thing to the R Drive font. I know it's a little different, but uh, like I see that in in our logo a little bit, which I which you you probably you picked that font and everything, right? Yeah, the R Drive logo was actually um, a lot of the heavy lifting was done by a community member um, before I got to our drive about a year ago, but, um, yeah, I kind of finished, finished it off and we, we decided to go with the font that it is now. Yeah. Which isn't Futura, but it's, but it's close. <laughs> so we were talking a little bit before the interview about the throwback aesthetic in web three branding. And I've kind of proposed to you over Slack that my theory is that the utility web three technology kind of has this vaporwave, like late Y2K aesthetic style Whereas the like CryptoPunk NFT pixelated style seems to be to me more related to like the speculative side of Web3. Whereas, like I said, the Y2K late 90s aesthetic feels like it's more about the utility. What do you think of this assessment? Am I way off or do you see some threads of maybe there's some patterns here? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I think I, I guess I think it can kind of be both um like i certainly 
it, it almost feels like it's so much of it is speculative at this point, even the stuff, even the, even the stuff with utility. So it's, I guess it's all speculative in a way. Mm. Um, I certainly see the, the beginnings of, I mean, it, it makes sense that, you know, the beginnings of, you know, like Ethereum, you know, had, or well, I, mean, I mean, when I think of Vaporwave, I sort of have this like conjures this sort of like haunting kind of like twisted aesthetic of like nostalgia and decay and kind of like collapse. And so I think like, Purely from like a symbolic sense. I mean, that sort of is the foundation for what a lot of this Web3 world came from, right? Or stood to sort of correct. Mm. Um, so it, you, know, it, I, you can kind of see why they, but I guess it predates it to a degree, right? Vaporwave as a, as a, um, as like a musical sort of subgenre, right? Yeah, yeah. I feel like I started hearing about Vaporwave in like 10 years ago about. I mean, I guess Y2K has a similar, um, sort of had a similar, I guess, like groundwork that it painted, right? Mm. Of Y2K being like, yeah, the, the whole worldwide infrastructure sort of collapsing <laughs> from industries, you know, from every type of industry. So it's sort of, yeah, it's, it's I think it makes sense as a precursor. Um I guess on the yeah on the speculative side, I feel like it all is this point now. Um, you certainly see vaporwave style things going on in the super speculative stuff like Olympus Dow. You know, has those like, or at least the old version of it had the like Greek columns superimposed on like the gradient, like, um, like kind of pink gradients, and I guess sometimes it has this like glitch art. So I, I think it's kind of all a mm. big pile now almost or it's all sort of like converge do you know the movie or the book ready player one are you familiar with that yeah what i think it's interesting there's connections here because we're trying to make sense of like the semi-recent past by remixing it retelling it reinterpreting it i feel like like hip-hop does something similar right with like sampling well any art form that does sampling and if we try to figure out what the zeitgeist of 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 this fusion is it's really we're kind of a generation that's kind of confused and lost, but also very hopeful that this technology will solve a lot of the like hegemonic problems of the past. So, and you, you make an interesting point that like to try to discern between certain brands of aesthetics is not really helpful because it's so, it's such an amalgamation, right? It's interesting too, to see if you really go down the rabbit hole, um, you can find basically like pretty much every, big kind of like web three brand that you'd know about has probably like a 95% correlation to, um, to a logo brand developed in the 1960s. Like it's pretty, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy actually. Like 99% similar to a logo or like, or no changes at all, or it's just been flipped on its axis, the central axis, 90 degrees. Um, so it is this, like, I guess, and, and where do you stand on, like, what is okay with that, right? Like, it's, it's just, it's an interesting, I guess, talk to have on, you know, when is it okay to, or I guess, like, what's the distinction between stealing and copying, um, and, you know, in the music, you know, from, through musical lens, like sampling and, like, it's, is it stealing when, you didn't know that like 
everything's in in your head, right? <laughs> so your whole life experience is you're drawing on. So, you know, I can, there's been countless times where I've, you know, developed a logo and then, or developed a concept and just screenshot and thrown it in Google images and gone, Oh my God, that's, there is a logo that looks exactly like that. I can't do that. Um, so like, where does those come from? You pick them up somewhere, right? You see them. Um, I guess, where do you draw the line on, on remixing old when there's not much originality left? to be had in a certain space. Yeah. You make a really good point, Lucas, because I think about how with like musical references or art artists references or even literary references, homage is also a way of expressing your familiarity with the history and the culture and the context in which you create your art. So like sometimes this was kind of like the, the issue with postmodernism and why people who wrote in the late nineties who stood out, um, were both referential, but also had a unique voice. It's like referencing other things is kind of a defining post-World War II um, like choice where you try to make sense of the world by regurgitating what you've consumed. And you've made the point that like, okay, if you do an accident, is it less of theft? And I think, I think it's true, but I also think that like, like Warhol said, art is what you can get away with, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if it resonates with people... Maybe it's okay. Maybe there's no limits. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, though. So yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we shouldn't involve any of them. I, mean, I think uh, I think they'd have a different opinion. But yeah, no, it's it's true. It's, Shout out to our lawyer Tim. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it's it, it's true. It is what you can get away. I mean, like the the Airbnb logo, it's a classic example. It's literally identical to this like Japanese like drive-in theater brand. Like identical. Oh wow! Or the Beats by Dre logo is like from the seventies. Or Slack is this. I think it's called Burlington Industries. If you Google that, it's like nineteen sixty something or maybe sixty three or sixty four, like textile company. Um, and that one's even crazier because the early version of Slack's logo matches the early version of of theirs, and their V two matches Slack's V two. It's just like. <laughs> that feels like a little bit of a a bit of a stretch like they couldn't have you know in isolation done both of those in a vacuum i don't know just just conjecture but it definitely feels like yeah it's what you can or uber is a really great example like just a 90 degree flip on its central axis of this like construction company from the 60s um so yeah i mean i think i would I agree with warhol that it seems like at least the consensus appears to be what you can get away with. Whatever brands take hold of the popular imagination, because that's such a hard thing to do, those kind of win in this Darwinian struggle. And it goes back to Richard Dawkins' original coining of the meme term, right? It's like evolutionary. Like, if my company has more cultural prominence, I guess I win. <laughs> like, yeah, I can afford a better lawyer. I can afford a better lawyer. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, you've given us a lot of your time, which, which I really appreciate. And, and I'll wrap it up with uh, this last question. I had a few, but I feel like I can combine them. I guess we've touched on the, the culture of working at R drive. And I was wondering if like, what do you think Lucas is special about R drive and how would you sum up your role there? Yeah, it's uh, it's a question my mom asks me all the time, and I still can't answer it. Um, 
not to sound, you know, it's, it's a bit of everything. I guess it's like, I kind of see it as a Swiss army knife sort of role that lives sort of, I guess, in the design corner, but is very collaborative by nature with, with all the other aspects of the, of the business. Um, so design product interfacing with engineers, with customers, with marketing, um, so it's kind of kind of a bit of everything, which is what I find sort of so exciting about it. Um, as far as yeah, our drive goes, I mean, it's a it's an awesome team of just diverse team of people from you know like a huge age gap, you know, huge geography gap, um, super smart people. Um, what's pretty unique about it, it for me is working with so it's it's very strong on the engineering side um so it's definitely my first experience working with mainly engineers um which is which is cool and i'm learning a lot but but yeah and and i mean what it stands to achieve is right up my, my alley obviously I, what i love about engineers and this is new my role here is they'll tell you the truth and they won't sugarcoat it. Like if something's wrong technically in a video I made, I'm going to know. And I'm glad because I feel like in in marketing and in music industry, people will, will kind of sugarcoat it. <laughs> Engineers don't have time for that. And I actually really respect that. And I've been doing that more in my life. You know what I mean? Like you can learn from the, from the, from their sort of like directness. That energy is very tight to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> It is hard to come by. And it's, I think it's because, you know, engineers often, they're often sort of siloed off in a different part of, if you're not an engineer, you don't often um, interact with engineers too often in, in, in many companies. So I think that's what's so cool about it is you do get that experience to learn from each other. And I would agree. It's very just like technically no. <laughs> kind of like, okay. <laughs> yeah, no sugarcoating, but it's, it's more efficient. <laughs> oh yeah, it's 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 why it's why they've had, but uh, why it's been interesting seeing the, the the successes that have come along because people are getting stuff done, and we are all perpetual students. And you had this great quote on your Crunchbase profile where you describe yourself as the perpetual student. So we can end with this question, Lucas. If you, so, if you're if you are the perpetual student who is then teaching a course on life, what famous person from history would be your TA? Maybe Yuval Noah Harari. Who's the author of uh, *Sapiens* and the other the other two *Lessons for the Twenty First Century* and um, *Homo Deus*? So kind of like, I just love how he's like. Uh, I mean, I would certainly he would certainly be my superior in this dynamic, <laughs> but if he would be so willing to be my TA. I think uh, that would be awesome. That's a great. That, I can't think of a better, yeah, better choice. Someone who wrote the wrote one of the best books on <laughs> on humanity. I remember I read that during the pandemic, and I was like, it totally rocked my world. I love that book. He, I'd take that class. I'd I'd sign up. Yeah. <laughs> he just knows everything. I'll let him do the talking. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be the TA, maybe. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's amazing, Lucas. This has been a very like heartfelt, wonderful like chat and i i appreciate you like going with me down this discursive road and um yeah I, I i really enjoy working with you and i really appreciate you doing this man so uh thank you this is a dope episode so thanks man thanks andrew it's been fun thank you lucas we'll be back in two weeks with episode 15 of the rcast be sure to follow us on twitter instagram facebook youtube 
and join us in the Discord to keep the discussion going. Be sure to check out Inferno, and we'll see you in two weeks. I'm Andrew, and this has been the Artcast. <laughs>